following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. So we are in third week of our Advent series, and we've been looking at different Christmas carols or hymns that are are well-known and loved, but that sometimes we sing because we just have them memorized and and it plays in the background as we shop, Um, but we don't stop to feel the depth of, of what they mean and what their significance is. And if, if you perhaps are visiting our church for the first time or, or don't normally go to church and you just thought you'd come for uh, the Christmas season, I, I hope that this connects with you and, and you find uh, some of that deeper meaning uh, that's there in these songs. And so uh, this morning, we're doing Joy to the World, one of the favorites, right? So last week, you remember what we did? Wasn't it? Oh, holy night, right? And we heard about how controversial it was during its time. Well, I don't know if you'd be surprised by this, but Joy to the World was also controversial in its own way. You see, Isaac Watts, who wrote it, he was a young, kind of edgy, progressive minister during his day, and he had some rather progressive thoughts about music and worship. A lot of people in the Church of England and, and during that time uh, of his day, they, they believed you could only sing word-for-word hymns, or sorry, word-for-word psalms within worship. And so he had this radical idea that you could paraphrase the scriptures and write your own music and put new lyrics um, to modern music and sing them in church. And so he was rather, rather innovative, and the church didn't like that. Um, but believe it or not, Joy to the World is a paraphrase from Psalm 98, and it, it was the edgy song of his day. Um, and so what I want to do, I want us to read uh, Psalm 98, uh, just verses 4 through 9. We'll kind of see the background, and you're going to hear some of those same themes, and then we're going to drive into, the, the, I think, the central paradox of joy to the world. Uh, okay? So you can follow along uh, in your Bible or just listen. This is Psalm 98, uh, verses 4 through 9. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Do you hear joy to the world in that psalm? Do you hear that a little bit? So there's three main, I would say, theological ideas in joy to the world. And then I'll connect them to some of the lyrics. The first is the advent of King Jesus or the coming of King Jesus is a cause for great joy. Right? Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Joy to the earth. The Savior reigns. The advent of King Jesus is a cause for great joy. The second main idea is all peoples are invited to joyfully receive this king. You hear that in the lyrics. 
Let the earth receive her king. Let men their songs employ. We must joyfully receive this king. And then finally, the third idea is that the effect of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing is that there will be the restoration and joyful flourishing of all creation. And we see that, right, in the idea, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. That's this picture of the restoration of all creation. So that's the song that we sing. But I don't know about you, but there's, there can be a disconnect for me during the holidays. And, and there's this, this old Simon and Garfunkel song, right, from back in the day. And it was, it was called Silent Night slash 7 O'Clock News. And, and it was just this, this almost very jarring thing to listen to where you hear this silent night, a holy night, and then you, you hear about beatings and brutality and, and Martin Luther King Jr. getting assassinated. And you, and you hear this, the newsreel alongside Silent Night. And, and sometimes I think it can feel out of touch, right? Where we, we sing these songs. But if we're just honest, so we'll just kind of, we'll be honest in church for, for a moment. Um, it's difficult sometimes for us to do that. But we got to be honest that in the midst of our singing our great Christmas songs, there's other songs that we're hearing throughout the day, right? And there's other songs and mantras that are playing in our heads. Just a few of them. There's the mantra of consumerism. If I could just have that one more thing, I'd be happy. Oh, no, no, wait, sorry. That one more thing. If I could just have that, I would be happy. If I could look just a little bit more like them, I could be accepted. I'd be okay. There's that mantra of consumerism. There are the anthems of political fear. They're taking over. They're going to take our rights and our privileges. They want to destroy our way of life. The world is against us. Live in fear. Protect yourself. Look out for number one. This anthem of political fear that we hear again and again. Or maybe, maybe for you it's the lure of the fantasy love songs. No one will know. I'm not hurting anyone. I deserve a little more for myself. Or he makes me feel beautiful. Or maybe she makes me feel strong. This lure of these fantasy love songs. They're playing in our head. And then we come to church and we sing joy to the world. <laughs> and so as followers of Christ, we're under no illusion that life is a, is a precious moment's nativity scene, right? We, we sing these songs not, not with our heads in the sand, and we realize that, that Christmas, ultimately, you know, it wasn't a silent night. That Jesus was born into a world where a power-hungry, blood-crazed maniac murdered every baby boy in Bethlehem. And that that his adopted father, Joseph, had to take his, newly, his new bride and her baby conceived out of wedlock and they had to flee for their lives as refugees and asylum seekers to Egypt. It wasn't a silent night. And so as we sing it, again, we're not just 
ignoring reality. We're not turning off the news. But we're singing it prophetically into the reality that we live in. Right? This king of the universe will return. He will make the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. He will make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Even as we look out and see that sins and sorrows grow and thorns are infesting the ground. We see both and we can sing into that reality. So with that, joy to the world. Now, because we hear it again and again and we sing it, I think we miss just this, this utterly strange like contradiction in this song. And it's that seeming experience that we have that in life, we don't put the idea of joy and kingship or power and authority in the same sentence, right? Christmas, we always sing about Jesus as king and we sing about joy. But nowhere else in our life and in no other time during the year do we think, right, of government and power and authority and ruling as going hand in hand with joy, right? We just don't. When we think of authority, we think of, or like kings and rulers and presidents and governors, we think of enforcing laws and requiring obedience. Or we think about the abuse of power, right? Or we think about the duty and fulfilling our obligations and serving our country. But we don't think about joy. If anything, the, the emotion connected with this idea of kingship or rulership would be fear. Or maybe, at best, patriotic pride, right? Okay, but not joy. Not joy. So why do we sing about, sing about joy in Christmas? And why do we find joy in the idea of a coming king? That's, that's this paradox I want us to wrestle through and what we're going to talk through this morning. And here's, here's the answer that I see. We can see the beauty and joy of Christ's kingdom when we compare it to our own kingdoms and the abuses of authority that we see all around us. That's what makes the coming of King Jesus different. That's what makes it an occasion for joy, is that he is so different compared to what we see around us in the abuses of authority that are here. So I'm going to quote someone that you probably have never heard quoted in church. His name's Friedrich Nietzsche. Okay? He's the guy that coined the phrase, God is dead. I won't be quoting that part. But um, he said this about power and human nature. He says, not necessity, not desire. No, the love of power is the demon of men. Let them have everything, health, food, a place to live, entertainment. They are and remain unhappy and low-spirited, for the demon waits and waits and will be satisfied. Or he goes on in another place. He asks the powerful, why do you call for love? Is it not just a way to keep anyone from revolting against your authority? Or he asks the powerless, those under authority, why do you call for justice? Is it not just a way for you to get on top? I think those are powerful and a, a true observation of human nature. 
And we see that in history and through the scriptures, there's five ways historically that people have responded to power and authority. Okay, two of the ways are if you're in authority. If you're in authority, we will have a tendency either to abuse that authority or to abdicate the responsibilities that come with that authority. So think of the overbearing abusive father or the deadbeat dad. Both of them are abusing that position of authority. Or there's two other ways we respond to it if we're under authority. We'll either have the tendency to rebel against that authority, right? I don't like being told what to do. I'm not going to do it. Why not? Well, because you told me to, I'm not going to do it. That's why, right? There's that rebelling against authority. Or there's the, the, the opposite kind of end, which is remaining apathetic and silent in the face of the abuses of authority, right? So we, we see that there's the, 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 the Bonhoeffer quote about how Hitler, he says, when he, he came for the Jews, we didn't, we, the Christians didn't do anything because we weren't Jews. When he came for the, um, what is it, the, um, the, the others, I don't remember the name, um, we did nothing because we weren't them. And then he came for the Christians and we hadn't, there was no one left to stick up for us. And um, the gypsies, that's what it was. He says, when they, they came for the gypsies, we didn't do anything. We weren't gypsies. Finally, he came for the Christians, and there was no one left. That's another way that we, we respond to authorities. We, we cower and hide. It's like the, either the violent riots protesting police brutality. So that's wrong. But on the other hand, there's the silent majority looking on and, and doing nothing in response to the abuses. So those are four of the ways we respond. There's a fifth way we respond. In the light of all these abuses of authority, let's just avoid authority altogether. Maybe that's expressed in anarchy, but that doesn't, hasn't usually worked. And, and so usually it's just, we just check out. We're just like, I'm done with relationships that have any type of obligation, responsibility, or authority. I don't want to be in authority because I don't want to bear responsibility for, for other people. So just keep your distance. Or... I'm certainly not going to be under authority because I've been hurt. And I don't want to be hurt again. And so we become detached. And we avoid all those kind of relationships that might require mutual submission or love or authority. So I would bet for most of us in this room that one of the greatest sources of our heartache are broken relationships of authority. Right? That's probably true. But at the same time, one of our greatest sources of joy are those relationships when they're actually healthy and whole and beautiful. Think about your relationship with your parents, right? Parents who are wise and loving, who teach us the boundaries and beauties of God's world can bring so much joy and health into our lives. So can a marriage. So can a church. The opposite is also true. How much sorrow has been caused by dad when he leaves mom and the kids and does not bear that authority and that responsibility? So much sorrow and heartache. So these relationships authority, right? They tend to be broken in our lives, but they can bring so much joy when they are healthy. I think we would, we'd like to hope that we can point out to the world and just say, well, yeah, those politicians, they're all, they got authority all messed up. 
But us in the church, we got it totally figured out. Right? Mm -hmm. You haven't been in church long enough. Um, so we don't have it all figured out. But we have Jesus. And we're going to take a couple minutes. We're not going to actually end up spending much time in Psalm 98. I'm going to dig into Luke in chapter 22. And you guys can turn there. It's where Jesus speaks to this reality of authority and broken authority and how that authority gets restored in, in healthy, beautiful, even joyful ways within the body of Christ. So turn there with me. Uh, it's in Luke chapter 22. Uh, verse, we'll start in verse 24. I love the honesty of the Gospels about the disciples. You know, if, if it was some kind of conspiracy and the, the early church, like, wrote and edited the Scriptures, you know they would never have kept these things in. <laughs> verse 24. A dispute also arose among them, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. There's another kind of similar passage in Mark 10 where James and John go up to Jesus and they're kind of like, uh, excuse me, um, we've got a question to ask. And he's, Jesus is like, sure, what is it? Well, we're just wondering that, you know, when you come into your kingdom and you have like that big palace that we're imagining in our heads and you have all your authority, um, I'm, I want to sit on your left, and he wants to sit on your right. Is that cool? And then, and then the other disciples hear that, and, they're, and they get disgruntled. They're like, what, what? I wanted to ask that first. Like, they got cutsies in line to, like, being the number two and number three in the kingdom. And, and there's things like, there's another one where, like, one of their moms comes. Like, mom, would you go talk to Jesus, see if I can get, a, like, a number one slot in the kingdom? It's just, there's these weird interactions that happen um, in the Gospels and in church, aren't, isn't it? True. Um, but we, so it's a pattern in their lives, like a bunch of kids on a playground, like arguing about who's faster or better uh, or more important. So look how he, how he responds to this. Look how Jesus responds to these, these jacked up views of authority and the, and the jockeying for position that was going on. He says this in verse 25. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the, leaders, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? but I am among you as the one who serves. So Jesus is doing something totally radical here. Do you hear it? He's turning on its head the world system of authority and leadership. He's saying, you're arguing about who is greater, but you have no idea what greatness is. He says, I have come to subvert these systems of this world and to create a countercultural kingdom that... that operates on realities that are completely different. In Jesus' kingdom, leadership is through service, and honor comes through humility. In the world, leaders rule and dominate by power and force for their own agendas. In the kingdom, 
Leaders lead through service and by example for the good of those they lead. In the world, right, those in authority seek and are given praise and honor for what they, they do, what they accomplish. The greatest in the kingdom are humble and do not seek praise and position for themselves, but rather defer the recognition to others. Hmm. Notice what he doesn't say. Jesus does not say, all, these, all this authority, all this whole leadership stuff, that's bogus. We're, 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 we're doing communism, or we're just going flat. We're egalitarian. We're, we're anarchic. Like, he doesn't throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? He doesn't throw out authority. Because the problem is not with authority in and of itself, right? The problem's with me and with you, right? Jesus doesn't overthrow the idea of leadership and authority. Rather, he changes what authority looks like. Many people think authority is the problem, right? So they, they fear authority and they try to avoid it or they try to not step into the responsibility of, of burying authority. But God created authority in the home, in the church, in government, and in creation as a good thing. Human authority in the Bible, when it's under the reign of Christ and expressed in a Christ-like way, is beautiful. And it actually brings joy and freedom, both for those who serve in leadership and those who are led by Christ-like leaders. It can bring joy. It can bring freedom. And I think this is especially relevant for us as a church body, both because of our history as a church and because of the culture that we live in that is, and, and this millennial generation, right, that is so resistant to authority and so fearful of it. So what I want to do, I want us to dig even a little deeper. I want to do a little biblical theology with you of authority and, and of the roots of it and of, of the beautiful expression of what it can be in the kingdom. So, go with me. You don't have to turn your Bibles, but in your mind, go back to the beginning. Go back to the garden. In the garden, our first parents were tempted with these words, eat the fruit and you will be like God. At the heart of sin, is not, it's not about breaking rules. It's, it's about the desire to be like God. The desire to be in control of your life and in control of others and ultimately to be in control of God. At the heart of sin is the desire to be our own king and to have our own kingdom apart from God's authority and his rule. But here's what happens, right? We think, oh, okay, to get free, to, to finally be fulfilled in my, in my life, I got to step out of God's authority and have my own and exert my own rule. And then what happens is it, it backfires on us, doesn't it? And it happens to our first parents. They step outside of God's authority, and then the other three primary relationships in their life are tweaked and go out of control and, and become painful and destructive. That first relationship is our relationship to ourselves. You see it in the garden, right? Right after they eat the fruit, their eyes are open, they see they're naked. They have shame for the first time in their life. Shame is a broken relationship with ourselves. 
right? I have to cover up. I need fig leaves. I need to hide my insecurity. We experience shame. We, we experience that divided self, that confusion. We question our identity. We question our dignity and value. We, we think we don't look good enough or we're not smart enough. We're not, it, it's that, that inner turning against ourselves. That second broken relationship is with the opposite sex, right? The man and the woman. They begin blame shifting. Immediately, their, their marriage, their relationship is, is fragmented, right? You gave me the fruit. I was tricked. I didn't know. Immediately, blame shifting. Immediately, not taking responsibility for themselves. And then God says this in Genesis 3.16 to the, the woman. You will want to control your husband, but he will dominate you. And that's the story of broken marriages and broken relationships since then. And then finally, our relationship with creation is broken too, right? God placed our first parents in a garden that he cultivated, that it was beautiful, right? A garden is just the raw materials of the earth cultivated to be beautiful and fruitful. And the rest of the, of the earth was wilderness. And he said, now go out. I've created a garden for you. I've shown you how to do it. Now go out and cultivate the wilderness. Fill the earth, subdue it, cultivate it, shepherd this earth. We haven't done a very good job at that, have we? Right? Our, our relationship with creation is fragmented and broken. There is a curse. There's thorns. There's the abuse and destruction of the environment. And creation fights against us. So this is the story of, of humanity. It's our story. When we step out from under God's good authority, every other relationship of authority in our life is damaged. So how does stepping back into Christ's kingdom, receiving that invitation, being under his loving rule and authority, how does that begin to restore these broken relationships? What does that look like? So in the scriptures... The term for life-giving, godly authority is this. It's, it's covenant headship. I don't know if you've, you've heard that term before. But it's what the Bible uses to describe good, beautiful, life-giving authority. A covenant is an enduring relationship between two parties, individuals or groups, that's based not on circumstances or the other party's performance, or ability to keep up to the expectations, it's not based on that. It's based on the unchanging character of God. And so a covenant establishes a relationship between two people, and in every covenant there's a head. And that head bears the responsibility to lead, serve, care for, and protect the other part of the covenant. So we've talked about some of that already in, in these broken relationships in the garden. We see these covenants in the Bible. We see... Genesis 1 through 2, right, that there, there's a covenant and there's a headship that God put man in charge of this creation with the responsibility to cultivate it and fill it so that we can steward its beauty and its resources. And it gives a witness and testimony to God and his beauty and his abundance. And Romans 8, as well as joy to the world, testify that there will be a coming reality. There will be a coming day when Christ comes and restores creation. Romans 8 says that the creation was subjected to, to this bondage of decay. 
to futility because of sin. And there will come a day when it is restored. There's also the covenant we learn about in Ephesians 5 between a husband and a wife. Ephesians 5 says that husbands are called to sacrificially love and serve their wives as Christ loves and serves and leads the church. And wives that they're called to respect their husbands as Christ, as the church respects Christ. We also see in that same context, children are called to obey their parents and the parents are, are exhorted not to exasperate their children. Right? It's a covenant loving relationship within the family. In the pastoral epistles, God calls qualified men to lead and shepherd the church, to serve it, to protect it, and to teach the whole counsel of God, not for personal gain, but humbly serving for the glory of God. And then finally, another covenant we see is government, Romans 13, that God ordained the governments and leaders to preserve peace, to reward good behavior, and punish evil behavior. Okay, these are covenants. These are these, are these relationships of, of authority in the scripture. And under the loving rule of Christ, they're life-giving. And they can be joyful. But when our hearts are not shaped by the gospel, when our hearts are shaped by the world and by our, our own sinful will to power, as Nietzsche describes it, then those relationships in our life fall apart and deteriorate. And there will either be abuse and abdication from those in authority, or rebellion and apathy from those under authority. Look again at, at Luke 22. This is where we're going to end, and we're going to press in a little deeper into what this can look like in the kingdom. Right? Jesus says, I'll be 27 again. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? So he's like, hey, when, when the waiter comes, right, when someone's coming to serve and is doing all the work and then someone else is lounging, relaxing, getting served, which is the greater one? And the obvious answer is, well, the one who's relaxing, right? He's, he's the king. He's, the, he's the, the man of the house, right? He's, he's just on the couch with the remote. Everyone else is meeting his needs, right? Whatever, like, sorry, sorry, sorry. But Jesus says, I mean, maybe some of you have to hear this. I don't know, right? But Jesus says this, right? Who, who's the greater one? It's a rhetorical question. Who's the greater one? In our economy, we think it's the guy on the couch. Look what Jesus responds. Is not the one, one who reclines at table, right? Isn't that, don't you think that? Don't you think that? But I am among you as the one who serves. What does he mean? You know, he says, he's, no, it's opposite. Get off the couch. Serve. Lead. Right? That's the call. A servant leadership in the church and in the home. So what does that look like? What, what can that look like for us? There's a, there's a passage in 1 Peter. I want us to, I'm going to read through it because I believe it, it describes this, this picture of the kingdom. And it's worth seeing it with me. So turn to 1 Peter 5. First Peter 5, verses 1 through 5. 
I'm going to read it and just make a couple notes as we go. And this speaks to both those in authority in the church and those under authority. 1 Peter 5, verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you. So here you have, this is the highest office of leadership in the church. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Now, this is, you know who's writing this? Yeah, like the rock on whom I will build this church. Like, like this is Peter. This is, and he's writing to a church in the dispersion to elders. We don't know their names. They're not pillars of the church. They're just faithful men who've led in their homes, who've led in their church. And, and he's saying, Peter's, he, he's dropping his authority, isn't he? He's taking out his, taking off his, I don't know, bishop hat, his apostle hat. And he's just saying, hey, you know what? I'm just a fellow elder in that church down the street. And so I'm appealing to you as a brother. He's even demonstrating that humility, even as he speaks. He says, do this, shepherd. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That, that's the word for pastoring. Pastor the flock of God among you. Elders do what? They, they pastor. And it's actually a misnomer to, to make a, se a separation that, that a pastor, just because he's employed as a pastor, and makes his living as a pastor, he's therefore a pastor. And those that are men who serve as elders but not employed are not pastors. That, that distinction is not biblical. Elders govern and lead the church. Some are employed full-time, some are not. And all of them are called to shepherd to pastor. It's what they do. They feed the flock with God's word and they protect from the wolves. So, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, right? That's the bearing of responsibility and leadership, not under compulsion, because you have to, not out of fear, not out of just obligation, but willingly. That's the idea. Not out of duty, but out of joy, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, Right? They're not greedy men, but eagerly. Not, I have to, or I do it because it pays the bills, but I get to, eagerly. Not domineering, so they're not heavy-handed in control. There's a way to exercise leadership in a church that's domineering, that disqualifies you to lead the church. Not domineering over those in your charge, right? God's entrusted them to these leaders, but being examples, right? That's what Jesus said, right? But I am among you as the one who serves. He leads by example, right? And when the chief shepherd, who's that? Jesus. Who's the senior pastor of the church? Jesus. When the, the chief shepherd, the senior pastor appears, he will receive the you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So receive their service, their care, their teaching. Show respect. Disagree without contention. Right? Submission is not blind. <laughs> but it's also not contentious. 
clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Right? So both leaders and those who are led are humble under the, the, the senior pastorship of Jesus. And then he ends with these words, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And we all need to hear that. And this is a picture of what church life, what leadership can look like in the, key, in the kingdom. And the fruit of it is joy. Like these can be really fruitful, beautiful, joyful relationships. So in closing, what makes all the difference in the world, what makes the kingdom of God and the church of Christ different than the world is our king, is the one who has all authority. And in Christmas time, right, we think of Jesus often as the baby in the manger, sleeping peacefully. But Jesus' life didn't end well, end there. He grew up. At the age of 30, he began his ministry with these words. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. In fact, that, that was his central message. With Jesus the king, God's kingdom has come to earth. The old system of the power plays, the abuse of authority is coming to an end. A new kingdom has come. He is the prince of peace. Right? He's ushering in a subversive counterculture that stands against the lust for power and the dominion that rules the kingdoms of the world. But he wasn't just some like radical idealist, like down with the man. Right? No, no. He lived out the values that he taught. He led by example. And his kingdom didn't come with swords and siege, but through service and sacrifice. His throne wasn't in a palace with purple and gold and, and bling, right? His, his throne was a Roman cross where he hung at the place of greatest suffering and shame. And he didn't come to be served, to lounge and let us do the work of God. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. On the cross, the lust for power was defeated when Jesus gave up all power and walked that path of humility and servanthood. The power of violence was defeated when Jesus refused to take up arms against those who struck him. And the curse of death was broken when Jesus blessed those who cursed him and prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And when Jesus breathed his last, he was buried for three days. And all of creation held its breath. Waiting to see if the promises were true. If Christ truly would make everything new again. And then on Sunday morning, right, the Son of God rose from the grave and he began the renewal of all things. The final sign of the kingdom of God had come, had come into the earth and the brokenness and the abuse of all our relationships, our relationships with ourselves and the shame that we feel, our relationships in family and marriage that's so hurtful, our relationship with this creation. And then finally, our relationship with God, all of it is being renewed and restored and our brokenness and our abuse and alienation can come to an end. So the message of joy to the world bears repeating. And for, for followers of Christ in his kingdom, 
It is not a contradiction to say, I live under the rule and authority of King Jesus, and I have a life that's full of freedom and joy. The advent of King Jesus is a cause for great joy. All peoples are invited to receive this king, and the effect of this kingdom will be the restoration and joyful flourishing of all creation. And so the word of Christ to us this morning and to you and me this morning is repent and receive the kingdom. Repent and receive the king. And this repentance is not simply, right, just we'll start to follow the rules. No, it's to turn from your control seeking and for li- from living as though you were your king. It means surrendering our, our religious moral pride and our hedonistic immoral pride. It means coming humbly to King Jesus, knowing that our only hope is not that we're worthy, but that he is loving. And when we come poor in spirit, when we come humble, we are welcome in to receive that kingdom. And when he is restored in that proper place in our life, those broken covenants that we have with those around us can begin to be restored. Those broken relationships made new. And we get to take part in doing that world, that work in the world and the nations. And I don't know about you, but I'm excited about that. Let's pray. Jesus, it is good to celebrate your coming. Truly, we can say, joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Jesus, we we welcome you. We welcome you into our hearts. Uh, Those that that have not trusted you this morning, I, I pray that they would turn from their own kingdoms that perhaps are collapsing down upon them and that they would bend their knee and receive your kingdom that you offer. And in the paradox of the gospel, you are the one who serves. You are the one who washes our feet, who makes us new again and restores our relationships. We worship you now, Lord Jesus. Amen. We desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.